other stories in the Bible too. What if I told you that there are hundreds of confirming witnesses, which give intricate detail to the stories in the Bible? Have you ever found yourself deep in the rabbit hole with questions that no one seemed to have the answers to? Check out swpcalendar.com to see when to join us for our next Ask Me Anything series with author and researcher Gary Wayne as he sheds light on the mysteries which have us all searching together. Most are afraid of unknown depths, skirting shores thinking world flat, and with the island girls in celebration of new religion. Nobody led me or said this way, I sailed alone on makeshift raft with wind as companion. Fate for deliverance, confidence enough to assess new disposition. Seekers of lost paradise may seem fools to those who never sought the other world. Welcome to Momentary Zen with Zen Garcia. Visit www.fallenangels.tv. You're listening to Revolution Radio. Hello and welcome everybody. It's so great to see you all tonight. Prayerfully you're doing well. I'm Justin James Garcia and I'm excited to continue our series with author and researcher and brother Gary Wayne, the author of the Genesis 6 Conspiracy, How Secret Societies and the Descendants of Giants Plan to Enslave Mankind. Such a really interesting book that you've put together, brother Gary. We really appreciate all the work that you have done and we thank you for joining us this time. It is the first Wednesday of the month where we always join together for our Ask Me Anything series with Brother Gary. Uh, how are you doing today, Brother? Doing very well and uh, so happy to be back. And, uh, you know, I think we got a whole uh, list of really good questions that are, I think, going to be, you know, questions that mm-hmm. a lot of people have. So I think it's going to be a really good show and looking forward to to, to the show tonight. Yeah, definitely looking forward to it and definitely really great questions as always. If you are joining over on the YouTube live stream over on youtube.com slash Garcia, you can add your questions to the chat. We do have a pre-made list of 14 questions. Normally we have some time towards the end of the show for some extra questions uh, from the live chat. If we don't get to your questions tonight, we will add them to the list for next month's live show. So yeah, we really appreciate everybody joining and welcome everybody. MJM, Galgotha, Facts Not Fiction, Adrian from Oz, Paladin, Tree Mistress, Malif, good to see you all. Jamie, Alyssa, Joseph, and Dayton Rogers. Uh, great to see you all. Thank you so much for the love that you share in the chat and for keeping everything peaceful. Uh, it's really important to, uh, to exude that fruit of the spirit, especially in the, this age. It's uh, far and few between the people that really do share that love. So we really appreciate all of you for doing that and definitely appreciate you, Brother Gary, for uh, your amazing 
uh, posture that you have when you share the gospel truth and share these ancient uh, testimonies that you've come across. It's always uh, with love that you share, and uh, you know that's so respectful. And uh, thank yeah, you, love you very much, and are really appreciative of you. So before we get into the questions. Uh, could you please let us know where the listeners and viewers could get a copy of your awesome book, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy? Yeah, the best place to uh, get a hold of me and or my book and uh, several other things uh, is to go to my website, thegenesis6conspiracy.com, www.genesis6conspiracy.com. And on that website, uh, you have a contact the author. So if you want to ask me a question or have a request for some additional information on something I might have talked about or what's on your mind, you can get a hold of me there. It might take me a couple of weeks, but I will get back to you, I promise. And on the website, you can also click on the buy now uh, and buy a signed copy from me. And or you can link over from that buy now page to Amazon.com barnesandnoble.com, amazon.ca for Canadian um, <clears throat> purchasers and or over to the Kindle for the digital version. And I know a lot of people like to have the digital version because they can quickly go through a book with all of the information that's in there. And if you're not familiar with the book, you can also go to the website there and uh, go into about the book. And on there, I've got a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters on on the website and you'll get a good feel for whether or not it's the right book for you or not but typically when people go through just the table of contents it tends to get them really really interested because i think it's just a wonderful set of topics in all 98 chapters so that's the best way to get a hold of me or you can get a hold of me on messenger on facebook or on my timeline and uh, hopefully down the road maybe i'll be back in twitter if uh, some of the uh, ownership changes there get you know helps them get their act together and uh, actually treat um the other half of uh, the the culture <laughs> with uh, the respect that we would appreciate re return to us right. yeah definitely so uh definitely check that out everyone it's a awesome book and like you said just going through the chapter list it will definitely spark a lot of interest and probably lead you all down uh, what was it, 90 different rabbit trails. <laughs> and I'm sure each each rabbit trail will lead you down very many other ones. So, yeah, that's definitely an awesome research that you have put together. And we look forward to the next book that you will eventually be releasing. I know that you're working hard on that one. Uh, looking forward on to that. Chapter, I'm on Chapter 60 now. I'm going to try and keep wow. it to 70 or 75. So Excellent. Um, my, you know, I'm my, I'm my own worst enemy, though, because I just keep <laughs> wanting to add more and more and more all the time. And so it's it's already a lot larger book, but I do guarantee it'll be a smaller book than the first one. I just don't guarantee by how much. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, definitely looking forward to that one. It sounds like you've been hard at work. So, yeah, let's go ahead and get into the questions for tonight. Our first question comes from MJM. And they ask, there are multiple aspects of Babylon. Do each of these specific aspects, like religion, have associated specific physical locations? And if so, pro please provide the details. Yeah, I think this is such a great question that, you know, I think a lot of people, when they look at end-time prophecy, that they get sort of confused 
or just not sure how to put some of the details together. And Babylon's kind of one of those strange pieces of prophecy that, you know, it, it links into all end time prophecy, but it just seems to give us something in the book of Revelation that is just, it's very sort of mysterious, so to speak. So I, I think uh, MGM is laying something down that is very, very good in the aspects that he's referring to different aspects of this beast religion. And so I think it's important to understand that you ha- we, we, when we try to get our heads around end time Babylon, we have to understand all the different pieces that it's related to, which is best understood as being, for me, a, a, a beast religion. But where I'm going to start is that um, first that what we can do quite easily is identify it as a city. And we know it's a city and it's a great city, you know, that reigns over the earth in the la- in the first three and a half years and probably some years before that. And it's going to have a rise to, to power. And we know it's a great city because it's, we get told it's a city in Revelation 14, 8, uh, Revelation 17, 18, Revelation 18, 2, 10, 16, 18, 19, and 21. And it's also sort of mentioned in, in Revelation 16 as well. So it's it's one of these things that we need to understand. First, it's a city. And there's a lot of different speculation as to to what city. Uh, I tend to lean probably towards it being an ancient city, which it, it's it's talked about in those sort of aspects. And Babylon, as you take that back to Greek, it's the uh, Babylon, which goes back to the Hebrew word Babel. And so it's an allegory for the Babel city and the Babel religion. And a lot of people think it might be in Babylon, and I'm certainly open to that. There's uh, one piece of uh, prophecy that goes with the seven hills or mountains that have a perhaps a different sort of um, connotation to that when you kind of look at Babylon and you say, okay, well, where are those seven mountains? But um, but we do know it it is a city, and we also know that it's understood as it's defined in Strong's as an allegory for the city of Rome. And uh, we also get Rome called allegorically Babylon in 1 Peter 5.13. So things for me sort of point towards Rome as the city center, as the world city center of this uh, organization that's you know even more than, than a, a religion. And we know it's a political organization because it rides the beast and reigns over the uh, 10 kings of the end time empire. And and it says in Revelation 17, 18, that it's the great city that reigns over over the the earth. And so we also know that the 10 kings in Revelation 17, 16 will hate Babylon. And they're going to work with Antichrist to hand their power over over to Antichrist at the midpoint of the last uh, seven years um, to overthrow Babylon. And then Antichrist is going to to 
set up a new empire, and that's the eighth empire as it's talked about in Revelation 17, as opposed to the seventh empire that rises out of the fourth beast and the seventh uh, and the sixth, I'm sorry, in the seventh empire of, of the end time that comes from the fourth beast, understanding that you've got Assyria and Egypt um, to account for the ancient part of the history, or if you're referring to Daniel 8, you can also get your seven empires plus Antichrist being the eighth out of the Daniel 8 prophecy where you have Alexander as being the first king. It gets split up, split up into four separate uh, empires after that. After Alexander dies, that gives you five. Rome succeeds it as the sixth. And then um, we learn that uh, this, that this empire is going to, for the end time, is going to come out of the Roman Empire. So it's going to be connected to it somehow. And obviously through Daniel 8, it's connected to 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 uh, Daniel 8 as well and to the Greek Empire. But Rome was part of the Greek Empire. So we know it is a political organization. And Antichrist, before he's crowned, before he is identified as the Antichrist, because one of the things we need to be aware of is what the epistles of John talk about in Mark and Matthew, is that there will be multiple Antichrists. And so Jesus is telling us to be, be wary of this. So we don't want to just pick the first Antichrist that comes along. Obviously, when he negotiates the covenant in Daniel 9.27, that establishes the last seven years. And we know it's the uh, last seven years in the end time because in Daniel 9, 26, it says the end twice. And when you take end back to Hebrew, it means the end time, the last days. So we know that those these seven years are in the, in the last, um, last seven years are in the end time. And that Antichrist is going to negotiate that covenant and in the middle, that's when he steps in and he's going to set up the abomination and he's going to work with the Ten King Empire to get rid of Babylon. So we know that Antichrist will be part of this political organization that puts it together that Babylon is the glue and the, I guess, the accelerator that's going to be required to finally bring this together with all the wars and the rumors of wars that are that are that are going on and so political is the second and so if we understand that then if we go to uh the trade aspect of it um you you get a you get an understanding of its trade and the wealth that the ten kings are going to be jealous about as the descriptions come out, not only in the description in Revelation 17 about all of its jewelry and its pomp and ceremony, but also in Revelation 18, I mean, all the merchants and the kings of the world are growing rich through through Babylon. And I think Babylon is probably going to, this is my speculation, I think Babylon's going to put on a value-added tax that would be properly better understood as a tribute and going to collect on every electronic transaction that's going to be taking place. So a lot like tear in that sort of respect of the ancient world. And so just as, you know, um, Rome will be the capital of the old empire, you know, it you may have that whole capital that's in the city of Rome today. And so it is also a religion and probably one of the more important aspects of a 
about it. And we know that it's it's a religion because she sits on many waters in Revelation 7.15. So a universal religion. The word Babylon goes back to Babel and the first mystical religion of uh, that's introduced by Nimrod, who is an archetypical antichrist type figure and the first one after the flood. And we know that Babylon is also in the time of Nebuchadnezzar and, and, and the Babylon beast empire. That's the first one listed in the four listed in the book of Daniel was controlled or let's say part of the whole organizational structure of the empire with that mystical religion. And so the Egyptian religion would be the same kind of religion. Assyria had the same kind of religion. Medes, uh, Persia, Greece, Rome. Those are the daughters of Babylon that the Old Testament tends to talk about. So this is uh, the allegory that's being provided for us and sort of underlined with words like the mother of harlots and, and the whore in Revelation 17, 16, and the mystery of Babylon. So mystery is mysterian and initiatory mystical religion, as you take that back to its, its original meaning in Greek. And typically when Israel was falling away from God and breaking their covenant and worshiping Baal and the Baalim and other gods, that would be used in the terms of adultery and or prostitution. So the allegories are there to indicate that this is going to be a universal religion sitting on all of the waters and controlling the end time 10 kings. So when I look at um, the seven mountains of that are talked about that are also seven kings. So you have to understand them both. It's giving you two pieces of information. The seven kings are seven antichrist wannabe figures that would have led all of those beast empires, let's say like an Alexander um, as one, and let's uh, name Nebuchadnezzar as another one. But there would be one main king that would be sort of antichrist-like. And Michael tends to uh, prevent the antichrist from coming forward until his, his ordained time but not the empire so the empire comes about there's antichrist wannabes but they're not going to be in place in, until the end time the seven hills i'm referring about are very important and famous hills that go back into the roman history um, and that's the palatine hill the Abertine hill calian hill capuline hill escoline hill cornell Hill and the Veminal Hill, and understand that the Vatican uh, uh, Hill is outside the old cities, uh, the old city of Rome, outside the old walls of the old city of Rome is probably a better way of putting it. Although in later years, let's say from about a thousand or eight hundred to a thousand A.D. on, the Vatican Hill would have been included in the uh, in the city of Rome. So I think, you know. I think the Roman Catholic Church may be one of the key ingredients into bringing about this polytheist religion. So if that's the case, you can expect this ancient religion to take uh, Catholicism over and spread through to the rest of the religions of the world through the false prophets that it's going to need to pull this off. And also understand that, um, you know, this this 
woman in that's riding the beast is going to be sort of equated in the dualism of polytheism as being a mother goddess and the queen of heaven and and a daughter of babylon um because it's just part of that constitutional aspect of that mystical religion so expect the 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 god and, and the mother goddess and the male and the female duality to sort of come back as well as the good versus evil within the the duality of polytheism that comes back for this kind of religion and it's quite interesting that um you have uh the palatine hill and um <clears throat> that was the home of the sibylline prophecies where you have the queen of heaven was sort of located there and the sibylline uh, religion put out a lot of prophecies and you can check them out on, on on the internet there are a number of prophecies that go sort of hand in hand with what is being prophesied uh, in in the book of revelation about end time babylon i'm not using that as the definition i'm just saying that's an old another sort of piece of context that may, may be helpful in understanding a little bit more about what end time Babylon is. And so Babylon, you know, to me, it, it, it's like a reflection of several kind of ancient cities. So, you know, I look at, you know, Tyr as being that merchant aspect of it and or Atlantis before the flood. And I look at Babel and Babylon as being the cities uh, of the ancient religion and the home of that mystical religion. And I also look at Nineveh out of Assyria, again, one of those beast empires um, that took Israel into exile. And the city of Nineveh is the city of blood. And I think we get these alleg prophetic allegories that connect back to these cities because Babylon town Babylon is going to have, you know, blood of blood on her hands and the blood of the saints and the genocides that Babylon is going to exert over people who disagree with this religion and economic system and political system. So it is going to be um something significant but yet it is not the organization that will be operating in the last three and a half years but everything is put in place by babylon so that antichrist with just a few people can come to power and just take over that complete organizational structure and make the changes uh, to his new religion thank you so much for that information though Definitely a lot of great points made there. Get all of that. On our next question, without surprise, and also a little bit of revelation. Love these questions and definitely love to hear your answers. So this one comes from Facts Not Fiction. And they ask, who is the revived Roman Empire? Is this the Eighth Empire? And could this empire possibly be the Caliphate or Ottoman Empire? Yeah, a lot of good questions in there as well. And it gets into understanding some of the more finite details of what is uh, talked about. So when we look at what the revived Roman Empire is, or rising out of the Roman Empire, just as I talked about Rome being part of the Greek Empire and part of that, part of the seven 
um, beast empires that you could number from there or from uh, the the beast empires that are listed in Daniel 7 and then adding on Assyria and Egypt. And one of the qualifications when you go to understand this is that, at least from my approach, what I like to do is I think the beast empires are directly connected to Israel and the fulfillment of prophecy, just as it will be in end time prophecy. And so if you look at Egypt, that's where Israel grew up. Uh, was raised into a nation. If you look at Assyria, as I mentioned before, it took it took Israel, the northern tribes, into exile and then dispersed them to the four winds of the world and then not to be awakened and found until they're called back by name in the end time. And so Babylon also took Judah in exile. So, so on and on. They all have an intimate relationship with Israel and Judah, just as the Roman Empire not only, you know, occupied and conquered Judea, but also destroyed the city and the temple and then took, you know, Judea into the diaspora. So that's sort of that intimate connection that that makes me look at who all the, it helps me look at and find out who all of those beast empires are. So what we learn then is in Daniel um, seven is, is that um, in 724 is, is that this, Empire of the end time comes out of the fourth kingdom, the this terrible beast of, of iron. And that makes sense and goes perfect with Daniel 2, 41 through 44, where you've got the two legs of this same empire, the fourth empire of ancient Rome, and then attached on is you have the two feet that have 10 toes. And these are the 10 kings of the end time, just as... The fourth beast in Daniel has 10 heads or 10 horns on its head, which are the end time 10 kings, and they make war with with the saints. Um, So you've got a very sort of clear indication that it's likely that this empire comes out of the Roman Empire. Now, just as you can connect it as coming out of the Greek Empire and possibly Rome, you have to understand that Rome has... you know, a very large territory of, as part of its ancient empire, just as Greece did. So, I mean, this includes, in both empires, it includes, you know, Egypt, and it includes the Middle East, and and, and it includes Greece, and it includes Rome. And with the Roman Empire, it actually, you know, gets up into France and into, into parts of England and into parts of Germany. So, if... This seventh empire is going to come out of that empire, and then Antichrist is going to grow up as this little horn amongst it. And then will be the eighth empire. It's going to be somehow connected to uh, this Roman empire. Um, you know, that's the fourth beast and or the legs in the statue of uh, Daniel 2. So we get a kind of an indication that that's probably going to be sort of a a reincarnated for lack of better word of the, of this old empire that's going to be expanded to a global scale, which again, sort of gives you a bit of a leaning that maybe the center is going to be in the city of Rome. Um, Doesn't have to be, but 
and it also doesn't have to be that Antichrist is going to come from Rome or the Rome, you know, the Roman Empire, as we would know, you know, the sort of a European kind of model of it. I mean, it could come out of the Middle East. But I don't believe that we're going to have a caliphate that's going to come up because I don't think the caliphate is going to be best positioned to adopt a polytheist religion because of its its uh, fundamental belief in its monotheist roots, as as they call themselves, as a, a monotheist religion, and let and but of course, if they were to be taken over by let's say Sufism, which is also part of Islam, that's like the Gnostics of of Islam, then perhaps that that might leave that open as a possibility. But it just seems to me that things are going to be a little bit closer leaning to 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 Rome. But again, if we look at Revelation 13, and you have in that description, this end time empire has seven heads and 10 horns and 10 crowns. And it has the appearance or is kind of like in parts as a leopard, which is the Greek empire and a lion, which is the Babylon empire and also the bear. So if you look at that aspect, you might say that this might have a a look of the, um, you know, Babylonian or, or, or Persian empire. So you could, you could sort of walk away with that. Um, but, but again, I think it's, it's, probably better to look at this as a larger sort of empire context that's going to go global and it just seems to fit a little bit better that it's going to be a roman base but we'll have to see how things come together what we do know is there's going to be 10 kings at the beginning on it and a point i'd like to make about this end time empire is is maybe help understand revelation 12 a little bit more in Revelation 12, 3, where you have the image of the woman who's going to have the have the baby, who's the, the Messiah, Jesus, and the 12 stars, which is probably the 12 tribes of Israel. In 12, 3, you get this red dragon that is waiting for the baby to be born. And that, that has seven heads, which is that seven beast empires that were all along waiting for Jesus to be born so that they could kill him. And it has 10 horns and seven crowns, as opposed to the 10 crowns on the 10 kings in Revelation 13. But it is the same empire. It's the same description. And of course, that's the same description as we get in Revelation 17, 7, with the seven heads and 10 crowns matching up perfectly with uh, Revelation 13. And then it comes back to tell you that there are also seven kings and seven hills so the seven kings is the reflection of those seven crowns in revelation 12 so the imagery sort of all comes together as you put them put them together and then in revelation 17 it says antichrist is the eighth empire and the little horn so again one presumes that might you may see the antichrist come out of the greek empire as as that single horn and as he's talked about in 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 Daniel 8 but it could come from any part of that empire for antichrist as well so again we want to be very very careful we get directional information but we don't get that exacting information so from my opinion my understanding it's possible that you could fit 
a caliphate Ottoman Middle East empire as being the center and the religious aspect of it. But it's it really to me, it's it's a bit of a stretch to make all the prophecies sort of fit that. Really great points. Thank you so much for that answer again. Definitely. Very eye opening. We appreciate that. Move on to the next question that comes from one more for the road. And they ask, is the punishment of Satan and some of the fallen angels eternal or forever? Or do you think that God will even give them a reprieve or a break or a second chance, etc. after a certain amount of time? Yeah, I, I think that they've had all of the chances. And I think after the resurrection of Jesus, and just as Jesus went down to talk to these evil spirits that are in the abyss in, in you know, First Peter 3, that um, after that, their sentence was completed and that there's no getting off that road for, for them. And they didn't know everything, obviously, because if they had known about the resurrection of Jesus, they wouldn't have had him crucified um, as is talked about also in the book of Corinthians. So I think that their fate is sealed and I'll give a little bit more information on this now to, to sort of substantiate uh, biblically how I get there. So in Revelation um, 19:20, and I'll start there. It's a little bit more at the end, but it starts to paint the picture. I think um, the best, where it says, uh, and this is at the Armageddon battle, where the beast and the false prophet were cast into the lake of fire. And so, what we do know is, is that the lake of fire is going to be real, and it's a separate place than um, Hades and where the abyss is. And in Revelation 20:14, we also learn that death in Hades, and Hades is the underworld and where the abyss is also located, that's going to go into the lake of fire. And in 2015, we also get humans that are going to be um, sent in there for the judgment, uh, who don't survive the judgment out of that. And then in Revelation 21, 8, that's representing the second death. So we have a first death that has a series of resurrections, and then we have this sort of second death. But what's interesting is, is that as we talk about what's going on with the people going into the abyss, is, is that Revelation 14, 10 tells them it's the people who are going to take the mark of the beast and don't worship and the ones who worship satan and the ones who worship antichrist that's going to go to the abyss and so you have humans here that are going to um be tormented forever and their smoke is going to rise forever with no rest day or night and they're cast into the abyss with the false prophet and antichrist in revelation 19:20 so and there's no rest for them. And then in Matthew, or we'll go to Revelation 20:10 again, um, where you have the false prophet and the beast, and they're tormented day and night and forever. And so you're also going to have Satan uh, that's going to go into the abyss at that time as well. And Angels are immortal beings, right? So they can't really die. I suppose God can 
sort of destroy anything. But I think if that happens, I mean, it's hard to them to be dead and to being tormented forever. So I think there's whether even though the lake of fire is going to sort of be destroyed, that there's something going on there that is going to last throughout eternity with with the descriptions that, that we were getting about the lake of fire and and, and the repercussions of taking the, the mark of the beast and worshiping Satan and worshiping Antichrist. So in Matthew 13, 41 to 42, um, in the parable about the tares, um, you've got some going into to the lake of fire. And I think that is not only being talked about in the end time in terms of human beings, but also angels. And that's confirmed for me in Matthew 25, 41, is, is that the lake of fire was created for Satan and his angels. And so I think when you put those passages together with uh, the people who take the mark and the false prophet and Antichrist are going to be tormented forever, humans aren't immortal. And angels are. So if humans are going to be, uh, some humans are going to be tortured forever, as opposed to those who go to the second death and actually die, uh, as we talked about earlier at, at, at the judgment, this is a separate class of people that have, have been singled out for their crimes on earth and the uh, turning the back of God in, to God in a way that is, is significantly different than people that are going to suffer the second death, but they're immortal and they're going to suffer. Angels are immortal. So one sort of connects that together. And would, to me, that indicates that they are going to, to um, be tormented forever as well. So, yeah, I, I don't think that uh, they get a reprieve. I think after the resurrection, that fate was, uh, was set. Got it. Thank you very much for that answer. Move on to the next one that comes from Leopard's Tree Angles. They say, Shalom, everyone. Uh, Brother Gary, what is your input on reincarnation? Yeah, I think it's it's a really good question again, and it's something that I would encourage Christians to understand the concept a little bit better, but not in the sort of brainwashing platitudes that you hear about it in. Let's take it back to who it's really for. And the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm going to start there and then I'm going to come back and, and make sure that we, we don't um, understand it as in terms of how it could impact humans, it'll start to make some sense if I if I break this down from a demonic aspect and the bodiless spirits of giants, Raphaim and Nephilim, and if there are other kinds. So when we look at reincarnation, that is something that is told everybody that they're going to live many lives as they're on this path to godhood. In the occult, it's only the adepts, it's only the elite, it's only the descendants of the giants that have that as reserved for them. 
and therefore they have rituals that they do uh, to try and ensure that their body when it leaves their their spirit when it leaves their body at death is going to be able to navigate through the underworld and there's two things that they don't want depending on and, and there's a couple different views on this that are out there but one view is is that they don't want they want to make sure that they don't go to the abyss prison as the ones are depicted in Ezekiel 32 with the ter- the terrible ones which are referring to Nephilim and, and Raphaim and so they want to be able to get to the underworld and if we go back to what also is going to be destroyed um, with that lake of fire and the question that we had just a couple of minutes ago that underworld Hades Sheol is going to be destroyed as well so there's not going to be that part of the dimension that's governed over by the fallen angels and the demons are part of that organizational structure of rebellious angels just towards the bottom not right at the bottom because that's where the elementals are just above that and that sort of hierarchy and so they need to find their way to the underworld which is still governed by fallen angels just as the earth is but this is probably in a different dimension and usually by manners of finding a portal and getting to to the other side whereas uh, some would also say that and biblically we get demons who are wandering the earth and that's the thing that they don't want to do is just be wandering the earth as in as if they're in a dry place and they're thirsting for a body so if they're locked out of the underworld, they're sort of into a purgatory for demon spirits, so to speak, because they're not allowed to go to heaven and they're not able to get in into the un- underworld. And these are the demon spirits that you know Jesus was dealing with, that um, were afraid that he was going to send them to the abyss or the lake of fire before their time, particularly with L- Legion. And they're known as the devils, which is daemons, where we get demon from, versus diabolos, which Satan, when he's called the devil, is the Greek word versus daemon and these are the ones that are you know possessing people so if we understand that demon spirits don't sleep then things start to make some sense and if you understand that the human spirit when it dies it goes to sleep and we get that over and over and over in the bible and you know there's one passage in job 14 that that i kind of like that um sort of sums it up and it says you know but man dieth and wasteth away yea man giveth up the ghost and where is he as the waters fail from the sea and the flood decayeth and dryeth up so man lieth down and riseth not till the heavens be no more and they shall not wake nor nor be raised out of their sleep and you'll hear that word sleep over and over and over in the bible um about the state that we're in because as humans we're going to be part of the resurrection sequence christ is the first one then the first fruits and then when he comes those who are who are, who are asleep who aren't the first fruits the first fruits are the ones who are martyred in the last 2000 years um, just as they're shown in revelation 6 and then the ones that they're told to wait for in the first three and a half years in revelation 7 
And then you're going to have the resurrection in Ezekiel 37 of Israel as they're coming back into the covenant in the last three and a half years and accepting Jesus as their Messiah and as their Redeemer and going under the judgment of that time, just as Daniel 12 talks about the, the people of Israel and Judah rising from the dust as well, some to judgment, uh, to everlasting life, and some to the death. So there's a separate judgment and resurrection for Israel. You have a resurrection of those who are killed in the last three and a half years for refusing to worship Antichrist, Satan, and or taking the uh, mark of the beast. And so... You've got passages, and there's a, there's another one that I always find interesting is John 11:11 11, 11 with Jesus and Lazarus, and where Lazarus sleeps uh, and he's dead, and Jesus is going to go so that he's going to wake him out of the sleep, and. Uh, as it goes on in, in the passage and in verse 13, Jesus spoke of death, but they thought he had spoken of taking a rest and sleep. Um, so Jesus, then Jesus said unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead, but he was going to wake him up because he has the power to do that. And so we need to understand human sleep. There's a passage in Luke about Abraham's bosom. Uh, that uh, is used as a parable, and it's the message that we need to take away from that as like a moral of the story, as a fable, as, as a parable would be. And so the people, um, you know, would, and the moral is, is that the people, even if they hear from somebody um, that was resurrected of the, you know, from the dead, they still wouldn't accept uh, what they were being told. So that's a parable. Over and over and over in the Bible, um, we're told that we sleep. So how does that now come back to the question? It's what's my input on reincarnation? That is a an occult ritual for the bloodlines and the adepts. And it is um, a false doctrine based on the consequences of fallen angels putting a counterfeit spirit into a human and creating demigods and that god stepped in in genesis 6 3 to stop that to limit their life and our lives to 120 years but that they would not be given the benefit of sleep that they would be roaming as spirits without a body until the end time when they too will be will be dealt with so don't get trapped into the reincarnation aspect and the many lives those are all demon spirits that aren't in the underworld that are providing all of those false memories and everything to do with that mythos really great points once again thank you very much for that answer next question comes from karmic dissuasion many books mention the 5500 gear return of yahushua plus the start of the millennial reign at 6000 if true does that mean we're currently past 6000 thus in the time of satan's last stand slash final deception uh it's a really good question and a lot of people um you know, look at that. I think what we don't want to be is too legalistic on the on the six thousand years, um, and then the thousand year reign of Christ, which would complete you know sort of a week of of, of thousand years. Um, and if it is exactly that number, then 
we need to understand how prophetic years are counted and sort of calculate in that direction. I tend to look at things sort of directionally and as Jesus gives us the advice in terms of the seasons and then sort of not worry as much about the exact years. And that will tell us based on the seasons and the signs and what he told us as to where we are. And so I don't think that we're in the millennial reign yet. Number one, Jesus hasn't come back the second time. I mean, that would be um, the most significant sort of as aspect. And, and, and I say that because it's in Revelation 20 in the second God War that karmic dissuasion is referencing with Satan's last stand and final deception. This isn't the same Gog War that is in Ezekiel 38 and 39, because we know that is in the latter times. And in Ezekiel 39, we're also going to have the second exodus that happens after uh, the uh, Gog War. And that war tends, for me, in terms of my understanding, lines up with Joel 1 and 2, which isn't the Armageddon War that happens in Joel 3. And it's the 200 million man war. That's the counterfeit Armageddon in, in Revelation 9. And then I sort of further sort of back that up with events that haven't happened. And my way and approach for prophecy is, is I tend to look at things as a linear basis, which again would be the basis of kar karmic dissuasion's question in terms of the 6,000 years or 5,500 years. But things have to happen in a certain order as well um, so that they're fulfilled in a way that, that makes sense with all the other prophecies. And so there's a lot of events that we haven't seen happen. We haven't seen uh, the rise of the Ten Kings, as we've talked about a little earlier in Daniel 2, 7, 13, and 17. And you can even put that into Revelation 12 as well, 12, 3. So we haven't seen the rise of Babylon yet. And that universal religion with all of those different aspects and the technology of what it's going to take to create that system that is called the beast system. You know, so, you know, and, and again, we have, you know, when we have Babylon, we have a beast religion, we have a beast political empire, we have a beast economic system, and you, in, it's also a city. So we've got those four different aspects as we talked about. We haven't seen any of that come along yet. We haven't seen... Antichrist coming along and negotiating the last seven years in, in Daniel 9.27. And we haven't seen the sacrifices that would be permitted in those first three and a half years. That he stops in the middle of the last seven years. And we haven't seen the destruction of Babylon. And we haven't seen a mark of the beast come along. And we haven't seen all of the events in Daniel 11 that happened in the first three and a half years. We haven't seen all the events that Jesus talks about that happens before the abomination and refers back to Daniel. And you need to read Daniel 11 before the abomination to understand how those events work into, uh, and Daniel that work into Revelation and into what, what Jesus told us. And we haven't had the resurrection sequence yet. So, and we haven't had the Gog War yet. And we haven't had second exodus yet. And so 
in my way of reckoning and when my in my approach i don't try i don't allow myself to get ahead of the chronology of the events and so for me that means we can't be in the satan's last stand deception uh, because we haven't seen all of those other events Excellent. Thank you very much for that answer. Definitely a lot of recurring themes. Uh, a lot of people seeking to get some more clarity on questions that we've had in the past couple months. So great to see. Of course, uh, you're continuing to study and sharing a lot more details. So we can all further our trip down these rabbit trails. Awesome. So we'll, uh, we'll get into the next question. We do have about five minutes until our mid-show break. We'll get right into this one, and it comes from Raziel Zeptepi. They ask, should Christians resort to cremation, or is a proper funeral appropriate? Yeah, another uh, another good question for sure. Um, so when we look at um, this whole sort of concept of cremation or, or burial, you know, I always like to be um, biblical as much as I can on it. And so I've not found a verse in the Bible that guides us uh, to burial or cremation or other ways of disposing of, of, of the body. So I think we need to, you know, you know, it's good to sort of consider some of these things. And, but again, unless we get sort of some sort of guidance on it, to me, it would be kind of open and, you know, for myself, I would, I'm, I'm leaning, you know, not leaning. I, I purchased my, my, my plot. I, I'm going to have a burial if I get my wishes. And so, but I think it's a per personal choice. Um, and a lot of people think, and I've heard people talk about, well, if you're cremated or or something like that, I mean, how does God find your body, right? And put it sort of back together. Well, in my sort of reckoning of God, I mean, he's omnipotent and he can do anything. So he could easily put you back together and, and that information is not lost. And it's not quite as i don't think it's quite um required to to try and keep all of your dust i guess together uh to be to be reassembled because god is that great what i do know is this is that um we're going to receive a new body something different when we're when we're resurrected and so in John 3, 2, it talks about we will be like Jesus when he comes. And when, when Jesus, he was um, resurrected in, 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 in his same body, but it was, it was still sort of being changed into something at that time that our bodies will be different when we're resurrected as well, and it will also be changed. And in 1 Philippians uh, 3.21, we're told that Jesus will um, transform our vile body and that will be like his and it's interesting that it's worded that way for me because we understand that jesus ascended back to heaven and he sits at the right hand side of god today 
And typically that is a world of the spirit realm. And so when angels or spirit beings come to this world, if they want to interact physically, they need a physical body. And that physical bodies don't go to the spiritual realm. You may get a vision of the spiritual realm, but you don't really go there. And so it takes a special kind of body. And that's what Jesus is body is is transformed into and ours will be like his so we will have a body that can go between the spiritual dimension in heaven and on earth and this is the body that in corinthians 50 1544 um, is raised as a spiritual body from a natural body raised imperishable um, raised for, uh, to be from mortal to be immortal and born in, in, in verse 49, born with the earthly image and raised in a heavenly image. And that's underscored again in, in Thessalonians um, at the time of the of the rapture is, is that even those who are still alive will be changed at the last trumpet in a twinkling of an eye. So something changes. So don't worry about where your dust particles are going to be. God knows, and he will remember. Amen. Yeah, really great. Once again, thank you so much for the answers. We will be right back after this short break. As a bookstore for truth seekers, it's our goal to make ancient manuscripts which were once held captive by secretive institutions available for public consideration. In our generation where wisdom has increased as Daniel the prophet foretold, we have access to many of the testimonies our early church brethren were persecuted for preserving. After being hidden for centuries, these manuscripts have been leaked from various sources throughout the earth and it's our goal to gather these sources into printable form to make available for all who seek the ancient way. If you're looking to deepen your studies of the biblical narrative, find these ancient manuscripts and more at sacredwordpublishing.com. When Justin and I found and started dreaming of what life would be like with her, where we would take her, what we would teach her, and of course, what we would read to her. One day we walked around a bookstore looking for books we might want for her and found nothing. So we started brainstorming what exactly we would want. Even from a young age, we wanted her to know and understand the heart of God and hidden truths that are in ancient biblical manuscripts like the Book of Enoch, and the idea of the Prophecy for Children series was born. Justin got hard to work and Praise Yah released the Prophecy for Children series. We are grateful for the support and amazing feedback from others who have been wanting the same for their children. We just found out we will be having a son, and we are excited to grow our family and to keep writing books for our children to share with our truth-seeking family. To order these books today, please check out the children's store at sacredwordpublishing.com.
your partnership with Sacred Word Publishing goes further than the publishing of ancient manuscripts and weekly video content. You also make a huge impact across the earth in orphanages in Myanmar, India, Uganda, and Kenya. Your support is crucial for the development of the Ecclesia of Real Truth Seekers. We thank you for just revealed Momentary Zen, the Digital Readers Club, Ask Me Anything series, and other shows that have helped lead so many to the truth of salvation. Become even more involved? Please visit patreon.com slash sacredwordpublishing where you can partake in exclusive, interactive, patron-only content and help us continue shining the light of love in this darkened world. tried for years and years to use passive resistance and loud voices to make a change. The time is over. Your governments around the world have no other goal than to decimate your entire existence. At the hands of the bankers and the elites. The war is coming and it's your choice to decide if you want to be a warrior or a victim denial is not a choice anymore revolution radio freedomslips.com the number one listener supported radio station on the planet not giving up revolution Radio, 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 radio. All right, thanks for listening while we took that short break here at Revolution Radio Freedom Slips.com. And now we're going to get back to your host. All right, welcome back, everybody. I'm your host for tonight, Justin James Garcia, and I'm joined by author and researcher Gary Wayne, the author of the Genesis 6 Conspiracy for our monthly Ask Me Anything with Brother Gary. And this is episode number 34, believe it or not, 34 episodes in. And this does happen on the first Wednesday of every month, for those who are wondering. And for those who are just now tuning in, Brother Gary, there's a lot of uh, conversation going on in the chat about your book and uh, potentially some people who would love to get their hands on the book. Uh, so if people would want to get a copy, what would be the best course of action for them to perform to get their hands on a copy of that awesome book? 
Yep, Google Genesis6Conspiracy.com. That's Genesis6 with the number 6Conspiracy.com. And that'll take you to my website. And on the website, you can buy a signed copy from me. You can link over to uh, the Kindle version from the Buy Now page as well and or over to BarnesandNoble.com, Amazon.com or Amazon.ca. And you can also order it through your local bookstore if you wanted to support your local bookstore. It's distributed by Bookmasters out of Pennsylvania for my for my publisher. So lots of ways to get the book, and it's also available on most online bookstores. So it's uh, quite readily available. Excellent. Thank you very much for all of your work, and especially for joining us for tonight's show, where we've had some really great questions. And we're about halfway through. So excited to continue on with the list. So the next question comes from Troy Barracks. And they ask, are we in the fifth trumpet? Yeah, and and it's a really good question. And my my answer is no. And again, I go back to the chronology about how things have to fit and they have to hand uh, happen in order that I've talked about a little earlier today. The fifth trumpet for people who don't have a Bible handy or not quite familiar where that sort of fits in in the book of Revelation is it happens in, in Revelation 9 and it's introduced in Revelation 8.13 with the three last angels and those three angels are going to do the three woes. So the fifth angel is doing the first woe and that is after the abyss is opened and Abaddon and the fallen angels come out and these horrible scorpion kinds of beings come out. Um, that are going to sting people in the world and it's going to cause such pain that they're going to try and they would love to have death come upon them, but they're not allowed to have death for five months. And that leads into, um, you know, the the 200 million man army and, and, then in, and in the Trump judgments, you get a third of the whole earth that are are being destroyed. So there's so many other things that have to happen before that, because with that war that's happening, uh, that's part of the coming apart of the uh, 10 King Empire and the rise of Antichrist, uh, understanding that this happens in the last seven years. And that starts in Daniel 9:27 that we've already discussed tonight. And that uh, there's an order that sort of happens uh, in terms of the woes, and that's the first of the woes. The second woe happens in 1114 of Revelation. That's after the one who comes up out of the abyss. He comes up and he's going to kill the two witnesses, and the two witnesses are going to prophesy um, on the earth and for three for three years. But at the end of that three years, or three and a half years, I'm sorry, which is the midpoint of the last seven years, the one who comes up out of the abyss who had just come out. And so this is opening of the abyss happens just, say, let's say a year or so before the, uh, um, the midpoint. And because we have to allow time for that war to happen as well. And so anyways, he's going to kill the two witnesses, and that's the second woe. And I think the third woe is in Revelation 12, um, when Satan is cast down to the earth, where it goes, you know, woe to the world, the devil has come down to you. And I think that's the third woe. Although we do get 
three sets of two woes given to us in Revelation 18 at the at the uh, just destruction of Babylon, Revelation 18, 10, 16, and 18, where it goes either woe, woe, or alas, alas, depending on which translation that you're looking at. In the King James Version, it says alas. And that goes back to the same word as woe does, which is G3759 OIE. And it means obviously the same thing. They just have decided alas there instead of woe, maybe so, so as to not confuse the first three woes. But you could look at the Babylon destruction as the third woe. I just, I think it's kind of part of Satan coming down to the earth because Antichrist is going to replace Babylon with the worship of Satan and of Antichrist and with the mark of the beast. Now, I always like to go back to uh, Jesus on the timing uh, and the chronology that he gives us in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 17, and Luke 21. And in there, we get a woe in all three. In, in Luke 21, 23, Mark 13, 17, and Matthew 24, 19. And this is the woe that happens at the time of the abomination. And so we get the woe that is happening with the people of Judea recognizing Antichrist with the abomination and they're fleeing. And that lines up perfectly with Revelation 12 with Judea fleeing and Satan being cast down to the earth. And it fits up perfectly with the three woes uh, of Revelation beginning with Revelation um, 9, 12 in the first woe in the fifth uh, trumpet. Um, so it's going to be just before the midpoint. So all of that indicates to me we have a lot of things yet to happen because even if, especially if you're looking at the chronology Jesus provides us, there is a number of events that have to happen, like the tribulation of the saints that Revelation 7 is recording that comes out in the first three and a half years. We haven't seen the uh, the resurrection sequence yet with the first fruits, which completes at the midpoint in Revelation 14 with 144,000. We're not told that they're martyred, but they're called first fruits and they're in heaven. So one presumes that they have been martyred like the ones in Revelation 6 and, and, and Revelation 7. And so the, anyways, I won't go through the complete scriptural list, but you get sort of my my how I get there in terms of we're not ahead of there and I like to look at Revelation as linear, so we've got to get to the uh, opening of the seals first, which hasn't happened yet. And for that to happen, we need to see the rise of Babylon uh, for that to come together. And we need to see the coming together or the starting of the formula, form, formation of the 10 king empire that will be jostling with wars and rumors of war for their territory in the world. And we may be getting close to that with uh, places like China and Russia trying to establish their position in this 10 groups of nations, spheres of influence, empire of the end time. But I don't think we're there yet. Uh, so there's some time and events and things that need to happen before we're going to get to the fifth trumpet. Really great points. Again, as always, thank you so much for that answer. Next question comes from Relly Jones. Can you explain Acts 10, 39, and 40? It's saying that Christ was slew and hung from a tree. And I think that they're asking the point that is kind of a, a common belief now 
not too common, but some people believe that he wasn't actually crucified on a cross, but he was hung from a... Yeah, well, and you get that English translation that, that says that. And uh, so I, 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 I understand that. I would say that that is a bad translation. Um, and I know a lot of people... Um, who you know rely on the King James Version, in which I use. I use five or six different Bibles, so I can get a good triangulation of, of of the words, and then I take things back to Greek and to Hebrew. In this case, we're talking about the Greek. So let's have a look at what the Greek says, and then people can decide what they want in terms of did the translators do a good job there. And so the word tree is G thirty five eighty six, and it's defined as wood and something made of wood, as in a beam someone is suspended from or across. And it can also mean as a piece of timber, prisoners were fastened to uh, with their feet, hands, and neck. And it can also mean uh, to be used as a shackle for the feet, and it can also mean a stick or a staff, and it could also mean a tree. So the translators would have to look all, all of this and then decide what's the best application. And for some reason, they chose tree, even though they know he was crucified. So maybe they're just using some sort of allegory or flowery language that they wanted to do. I, I don't know what their motivation is, but to me, it, it leaves things open for speculation, which it ought not to be, because the details of the definition of the word line up very well with the crucifixion and, and, and the cross, just as some people will also uh, talk about or, or say he was impaled on, on a pole. Well, that's a different question that I'm not going to answer here, but people want to get a hold of me, I'll send you information on why we know it's a cross and not just a pole. Uh, similar type of uh, how I get there is through the original Greek words on that. So, And then that word hang um, is uh, 2910 in the Greek Strong's Concordance, and that's krem uh, anamumi, and it can mean hang, suspend, hang up, or hanging on a cross. So they could have chosen different words for both and given a more clear translation, in my opinion, but they chose not to for whatever reasons. But when you line it up with the details of the words in the terms of the crucifixion and the cross that's used in, in the four Gospels, he was crucified. Uh, it's just hand, it's just, there's just no dispute it when you, disputing it when you take it back to the Greek, defi Greek definition. So, no, he was not hung from a tree, but you could use that in sort of poetic language that that's what they that that's what they were trying to infer meaning that it was a crucifixion but they're just using flowery language uh, i would prefer to look at that as as opposed to a really bad translation but i'll leave that to the listener to, to decide what they what they think about the translation really great points thank you for sharing that Got to mention, you know, Psalm 22 says that his hands and his feet were pierced. And I feel like we know quite a bit, historically speaking, about crucifixion and the Romans, the uh, subject that has been extensively studied and documented. So nothing really like too shocking there. Yeah, thank you for clearing that up. So we'll move on to the next question that comes from Gad Seer. And they ask, what is the significance of Noah being born different in appearance than other humans? 
Yeah, that's a really good question, too. These are such great questions tonight. So um, where Gad this year is, I think, getting his um, question about the appearance of Noah being different than other humans comes out of the book of Enoch. So, And I like Enoch a lot. Um, and uh, I think this fits well with uh, the Bible. So that part, this part of the Enoch book, I, I and most like I like First Enoch like 99%. But there's a few corruptions, and we don't have the original Hebrew to for a full manuscript to test its veracity. But I think this part's a, a reasonably good translation. So, and it fits biblically, as I said. So Enoch 106 uh, verses one through five is Noah's born white as snow and red or ruddy as we might get the word ruddy uh, as a rose in, in, in the Bible. And typically uh, this is going to talk about, um, you know, the type of the skin that somebody's going to have. And it's, uh, you know, Esau would be called ruddy, for example. And he had long hair and also um, you have ruddy that's it sort of, connected to their use of the word fair in the Bible, which means beautiful and or pale skin, um, and also had, you know, eyes that would light up a room when he opened his eyes. And it says in the passages that, you know, Lamech and Methuselah were extremely disturbed that they thought Noah might be, you know, uh, born of the sons of God, the watchers, and a, and a human female, like a Nephilim was before the flood. Because when, you know, the, I mean, he shone, just as the shining ones were a description for, for the giants, both before and, and after the flood. But in 106.10, we're told that um, Noah was born for a specific purpose. And so... He was also the son of Lamech, and it's confirmed there. So he has this sort of look of a Nephilim, but Enoch settles them down and says, no, he's the son of Lamech. He just he's, has some of these traits because he was born for a special purpose. And I think what we're getting from this description is, is that he, right from his birth, was given extra strength and wisdom and power from God because he was going to grow up in a generation where the whole world was going to be against him and only eight were going to escape on the flood. And he had to have all the animals come to him to load on the boat. And he had to deal with the, the Nephilim regime and the tyrants and the mystical religion that was everywhere. And they would have been trying to harm him. So he would have had to have been uh, protected by God in some way, and I think this might be a reflection of some of that knowledge and power that God may have provided Noah to complete his his commission, both the 600 years he was before the flood and 350 years after the flood. Now, we get something kind of similar in the book of Exodus with Moses. And that in Exodus 34, 29 to 35, um, after Moses was with God, he comes back and his face is radiant. And 
what they would do is is they would put a veil over Moses's face after he was done speaking. Um, but th- it was almost like it was a distraction for the people because of of the shiningness that that Moses has had. And uh, we get this confirmed in two two Corinthians three thirteen that Moses had the radiance of God emanating from him. And I think God, you know, helped. Um, Moses spiritually and physically as well to carry out his commission after the flood. So I think that shiningness is is that help and that extra strength spiritually and physically that God would provide Moses and likely Enoch by the description of what he was like when he was born. Thank you very much for that answer. Our next question comes from Olive Grove. What do you know of the Anasazi, and could the Native Americans be the lost tribes of Israel? I don't know a lot about the Anasazi. Um, I, you know, the little research I've done on them is they were the ancestral Pablo people, and that the Navajo, uh, you know, coined the the their name for them that meant the it meant it uh, in its meaning was the ancient people um, some people um, define it as the ancient enemy uh, the hopi called them the the histanum and that meant the ancient people as well you know they kind of show up somewhere between 5 and 1200 ad and then they kind of disappear they migrate somewhere and they just kind of disappear and they left all of these sort of dwellings and things like that but the mythos takes them back to be very, very ancient uh, people and that they could have even been antediluvian. Uh, I think more likely post-diluvian. Some people believe that they're the Scythians. Um, so there's a lot of sort of mythos out there. The question is, is do I think that they are the lost tribes? And what i will say about the lost tribes is is they were dispersed to the four corners of the earth to the four winds and they're lost into all of the people and into all of the various types of the root polytheist religion that was before the flood throughout the earth um and this is the same religion after the flood that was before the flood that begins at that babel and so we also know that in the time of the Exodus, the second Exodus, as the book of Micah talk, talks about when Jesus is going to be the breaker and break the people of Israel from the prisons, he's going to bring them from the four corners of the world again to meet up with the people who have previously fled at the midpoint of the last seven years, who fled Judea into the wilderness to be protected for the last three and a half years. So if they've been sent to the far islands of the world, the far continents of the world, then they're mixed in with all the different peoples around the world. And so it's a possibility that the Anasazi might have some of the ancient Israelites who were dispersed and sold into slavery around the world as part of their, their people. Um, I suppose it's even possible that they may be even one of the tribes or a number of the tribes. 
I can't confirm it because I, I, you know, there's just not that written account of this that we can sort of rely on. But what we do know, it's a possibility. And I know there's some researchers out there that I've talked with that are uh, making more and more links to different tribes in North America that have some sort of Israelite uh, lost tribe connection as part of the tribes that were dispersed, you know, around the world. So it's certainly a possibility, but I, I, I don't have anything to uh, substantiate that. But what we do know is there will be people in North America that are going to be called by name, awaken, and they're going to be part of the second exodus if they're not killed before that. Hey, thank you very much for that answer. Our next question comes from Jules. The Catholics believe that they can pray to saints, Mary and the apostles and even family, and that they hear us, and in turn, they pray for us. What do you think about this? And is there any anything about this in any of other ancient scriptures? Yeah, not 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 biblically or Christian or Judaic. So um, this is kind of a, a Catholic tradition, and I kind of think how they get there is through the idea of you know the the res you know the resurrection sequence, if I can if I can put it that way. Um, and what we do know is in, in Matthew twenty seven fifty two is is that at the time of the resurrection of Jesus, you actually have graves being opened, and that they actually were made made themselves visible to people as the witness of uh, Jesus's resurrection. And so the question is is were they part of the resurrection sequence that is Christ the first fruits, and then when he comes those who are still alive and those who weren't martyred or dead in, in, in Jesus. And so we know there's a series of resurrections of, of the first fruits because we have the 12 elders that are seen in, you know, the first uh, five books of uh, Revelation. I think they show up in Revelation 4 and 5. And uh, then we have those in Revelation 6 over the last 2,000 years who, who would have been uh, martyrs in Jesus, and then we have the second set in Revelation 7, and then we have the two witnesses, and we have the um, 144,000 that are all part of the first fruit. So there's seems to be different parts of the first fruit's resurrection. There's stages of that. So if that's the case, then there and as I understand it, their belief is is that you know God can do anything that He wants. So if He wanted to raise up saints at any time, or if you wanted to raise Mary back to, to God, that that's within his power as being the omnipotent God. And certainly any time after the resurrection, that would, to me, remain open as a possibility. Where I tend to part on the whole sort of scenario is, is again, I like to go back to what Jesus said. And Jesus taught us to pray directly to God, as he did. And, uh, and and you know Matthew um, six uh, verse six and nine and, and particularly as um, 
he gives an example with the Lord's Prayer, and he also said to do it in, in private as well. Not that you can't pray in public, but that was his his advice in that particular third passage. And because we know you can, the Bible talks about praying in, in groups and things like that as well. So that's not the only way. I didn't want people to misunderstand what I was saying there. And then in John 14, 13, um, we're said that we can ask for things praying directly to God in Jesus's name. And also in um, John 16, 23, 34. And so I think what we're being instructed here by Jesus is that you can pray directly, you should be praying directly to God and you can pray in Jesus's name, but we're not given scripture beyond that. And so whether or not they are using people that have been resurrected that would intercede for them for on their behalf um, is one thing, but whether or not that's the case or not, that they've already been resurrected, that's still not to me how we've been instructed to to pray. So um, I would, you know, I would I wouldn't do it. Um, but I understand why, why Catholics do it, uh, and, but I wouldn't recommend people to do it either. So, um, but that's kind of how they get there on it, I think. Thank you for that answer. Interesting question. So next one comes from Steve Martin. Please ask Gary about the one third of the angels not mentioned in the Bible. Who were they? I mean, one third fought against Michael and one third, uh, and his one-third, can you tell me about the other one-third? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, just want to bring that passage up because that, that would be a very, very, very good question. So just bear with me. I want to just confirm that that's what it actually says. Yeah, I'm not sure that it identifies identifies that Michael only had one third of them as well. That's, that's, that's what I'm just double checking on here just to be safe. Cause yeah. it, as, <laughs> so that comes up in. So it says, and there was war, there was uh, war in heaven and uh, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon fought against his, his angels. Um, and in 12.4, it talks about uh, the 10 horns and the 10 kings, as we talked about in 12.3. Then it goes on and it says, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman. So it doesn't talk about a third amount of angels that Michael has. But what we do have is a third of the angels, you know, were thrown to the earth or knocked to the earth or rebelled with with uh, Satan. So um, how I understand that is, is about one third of the angels uh, rebelled, at least will have fully rebelled by the midpoint of the last seven years, because, again, we get that three and a half years as a timer that's listed in Revelation 12 that are remaining. And so what we do know in Revelation 5.11 and Daniel 7.10 is that there are 10,000 times 10,000, which is 100 million angels. And whether or not that's an allegorical number, because other passages might tell us that 
Um, you know, they are countless or they can't be numbered, but we know there's a big number. So, but let's just use this, that, that it's a literal number. That would mean a third of the angels were 33 million rebellious angels. Um, and then one would presume there'd be 60, you know, 66 million um, that were uh, still loyal to God. So we don't have a full 50% that are rebelling, but one third is a significant number and there's a lot of angels. So with the angels that are amongst this third, you have ones that would have been sent to the abyss before the flood that created crimes against humanity and for creating uh, the Nephilim, so the impassioned ones, and then, then again after the flood, if let's say the Baalim did the same thing, and I think they did, and also created crimes against creation and against humanity, they would have also have gone to the abyss. But not all the angels are rebellious angels are in the abyss. So there's still a number that are active. But I don't see, and I've not found any scripture, that there would be a third that are... Um, set aside somehow some way what steve might be getting there and be interested to know whether or not he's got some other scripture or other sources on this other third because there could be a third that are sitting on the sidelines and weighing out to see what happens as this whole rebellion thing was playing out um but again we don't get scripture on that but you know steve if you've got something on that uh please uh please send it to me uh, uh, on my email off my website and that's the uh genesis 6 conspiracy at gmail.com so if you've got something on that i'd love to have a look at that yeah that's definitely an interesting premise so our next question comes from tristan martineau i have an end times question Will God guide a select few to hide during the tribulation to produce during the millennium? Or will there be a reason to reproduce at all, in your opinion? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really good question because, I mean, there's going to be so much destruction that's going on in the last three and a half years. And we know there's going to be people who aren't going to be worshipping Antichrist, aren't going to take the mark, and aren't worshipping Satan. And that we also know that one would presume that there's going to be survivors into the millennium. So there could very well be some of those people, whether or not they're protected or, or not, or it's just by um, luck of the draw, so to speak, because they're going to be resurrected anyways to rule in the millennium if they were killed. But um, I leave open that possibility that there's going to be people from the nations um, that aren't Israelite uh, that will survive into the millennium um, because we also have like that Gog and Magog war again that's uh, at the end of the revelation. So now having said that, there's not nece necessarily for that to happen because there's going to be so much of Israel that awakens from the four corners of the world that they're going to have you know, sort of representation in, in all of the places and nations around the world. But I just think it makes more sense that there would be survivors um, that are outside the awakened lost Israel, invisible Judah, as we see them today as the remnant. And, and I know there's a, a number of the Jewish people that aren't the true remnant, and there's 
uh, all of the uh, things to keep in mind in terms of the synagogue of Satan and things like that. I understand that, but there's still a good, there's still a remnant of people that God's going to protect and fight for in the end time in visible Judah for the three tribes that are with him. So, um, so I think there's a good possibility, but um, if God wanted to ensure that they, that there were, that those survivors were going to be there, he would step in and, do something like what he's doing with Judah and with, with lost Israel in the end time. But we don't get scripture on that, which is, you know, a bit odd. But my gut feeling and just my speculation is, is yes, there would be some uh, additional survivors that lived throughout the millennium. So the rest of that, they could repopulate the earth and the rest of the names of the book that were written in the book of life before creation are completely fulfilled. And that's what happens in the millennium. And it's also a purpose where they're going to, there's going to be a thousand years of rain that is totally opposite. That was, has happened to the last 6,000 years yet. People are still going to rebel. They're going to be intimately working with people who were witness to the old world, the saints that are ruling with Jesus. They're going to have Jesus there going to have intimate knowledge, just like the angels did, but still rebel. And I think it's the final chapter that can, that condemns Satan um, and his rebellion um, is is what happens with the humans that rebel in that second Gog war because they're led by Satan. So it just seems to me it would make more sense that people would be repopulating in uh, the, the the millennium as well, and it would be that sort of sort of cross the spectrum mix of the peoples of the seventy nations. They're really great points again. Uh, this is our last question from the pre-made list. Before we get into the live questions, this one comes from Vector Sumio, and they say, is it possible that, quote, lest those days be shortened, end quote, that the days literally speed up like the day is roughly two-thirds of a normal day? Well, something's going to happen uh, because... You know, as as uh, Vector has uh, noted in Matthew twenty four twenty two, um, Jesus is going to step in and shorten the days, lest all people on the earth are killed, and the whole world is going to be destroyed. Sort of similar to what may have happened if you follow the uh, renewal or the gap theory, where the earth is destroyed in the angelic rebellion. And so something happens, whether or not there are complete days that are taken off or it is the shortening of the days. And it's uh, kind of an interesting sort of philosophical or theological discussion as it links in, in, into um, prophecy. Uh, so we know something happens there. And the word shortened is uh, the the Greek word um, kolobu, and it means shorten, curtail, abridge, or dock. And so it leaves us, again, really nowhere in terms of exactly what it, what is getting at. I think the days somehow are shortened, um, and that would mean that the earth would have to spin a little bit more, faster, um, and it could have something to do with all of the different wars in the things that are going on that that causes the earth to spin a little bit more uh, some people say it's because of of uh, wormwood 
uh, in Revelation 6, but that if you know if you had a planet hit us, then that'd be an extinction event. Or if you had an asteroid hit us and huge, it would be like an extinction event. So it'd have to be something, you know, I suppose you could have asteroids and things, uh, meteors that would hit all at once that might spin the world a little bit, bit faster. Um, but something happens. And I think for me, scripturally, that because we get, you know, what a length of a prophetic year is, which is 360 days, right? Um, and we get these exact numbers with the middle of the seven and the number of days and and how it's described in Daniel and Revelation that in, in on both sides of the abomination that are equal lengths that if the days were shortened in terms of not letting them be sort of fulfilled with those numbers, to me that would be a little bit scripturally out of sync. So for me, I would lean to somehow the earth is going to spin a little bit faster, or if you believe the the sun is going around the earth, then it's going to be the one that's going to be moving faster around the earth. But something is going to happen that's going to cause that. That's really the only way that I can scripturally get there because I understand Jesus moving in so that everybody isn't going to be killed. But when you're dealing with perfection, those days have to be fulfilled, just like all the names that are in the book of life that aren't going to be erased have to be fulfilled. So, yeah, I would say the days are going to get shorter somehow, some way. Yeah, that's a very interesting question. And all of those questions were great. Thank you so much, everyone who did submit a question last month. If you are in the YouTube live stream, please feel free to write your question in the chat. Please just make sure to write question mark in caps before it so it's easier for me to see. And we are moving now into the our favorite time of the night, the pop quiz for Brother Gary. And these are the live questions. And the first one comes from Bird of Paradise. They said, do all Nephilim go to the lake of fire? A lot of questions about uh, this topic tonight. I know a lot of people automatically believe that Nephilim, because they are illegal creations uh, and or Raphaim uh, after the flood, would, would go to um, the lake of fire. And, you know, and I suppose that's possible. It's not how how I tend to look at it, though. Um, and maybe I'm just more of an optimist, um, but I think all beings, no matter how they're created, maybe the first generation, maybe it was a little bit different that they're, because they're, you know, they have that pure counterfeit spirit that's in them, but we're all sentient beings and we are given free choice. And if a Nephilim or Raphaim chose to follow God and to follow Jesus, then one would presume that they would be saved. Now, you can make an argument that how they're created, there's no way they're capable of doing that. That's fine. But Jesus' sacrifice was greater than all the sins created in the whole world. 
And the only thing that prevents salvation is a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which seems to be, you know, connected to the Holy Spirit providing life. That's that violation against the life that is uh, given to the earth via the Holy Spirit at the command of God. And so the people who take the mark of the beast and worship Antichrist and Satan, I mean, they're going to burn because they're doing something that's going to violate and blasphemy that's connected to uh, blasphemy or a violation against the laws of creation that is a violation against the Holy Spirit. So I think if they chose to to worship God, though, that, you know, they would not go there. And I think we get some connections biblically about that. So you have, for example, um, mighty men that are fighting with uh, David's mighty men, like Uriah the Hittite and a couple other ones that one can make an argument for being for being giants. And you can also make an argument that the Gibeonites who were Hivim uh, from the Rephaim and they deceived Joshua, made a covenant with them, they became servants of the temple and they become the, the Nethanim that are talked about, you know, in the time of uh, the return from, from Babylon and that there's a genealogy of these Nethanim that are Gibeon, Gibeonites, which are the are the Hivim. And so one might make a good argument, I think, that they were faithful followers of our God as being temple servants. Maybe not all of them, but one would might presume a number of them would be, because if they were doing things against the temple and against God, they would have been removed or they would have been stoned or, you know, according to Israelite law. So one presumes that if they were followers of God, just as a foreigner, if they're going to convert to Judea at that time, they would be considered part of Israel. Now, in that case, they would be one, I'm not sure what point of the resurrection that they would have, whether it would be a resurrection with Israel, or I, I don't think if they were going to be condemned to the lake of fire that they would be demon spirits. So that conversion and loyalty and faith in God may permit them to sleep. There's a lot of what ifs here, um, but I go back to my base point. I think that we have free choice, all beings do. And if you believe in Jesus and you believe in God and you follow them and walk in, in, in their ways, um, you're going to receive salvation, whether or not you're a Raphaim or an Ephilim or a descendant of them. That's just my personal belief. And I think, and I would hope that that's the case. I really great points and, Kind of uh, sends me back to a conversation I had with Rob Skiba a long time ago uh, before he passed. We were having the same conversation about in Enoch. You know, people always bring up this verse, and I brought it up to him that you know, the Nephilim, I believe, I thought it was the Nephilim were going up to Enoch and asking them to petition on behalf of uh, them to the Most High to ask for repentance, right? But uh, it actually was the fallen angels who went up and asked for that, and they were denied their uh, that chance because they had already rebelled and their judgment was already sealed. But uh, he made it 
pointed out that that was not a judgment on the children themselves, but on uh, on the fallen angels. So yeah, really interesting question, and thank you for sharing that. Next question comes from Wusti. They say, what do you think the tree of knowledge stands for? Well, um, I think we're kind of given what it is in the uh, in the Eden account, where it's the book of the knowledge of good and evil, um, not just the knowledge. Uh, so typically when it's understood as just knowledge, that becomes more of a polytheist or, or Gnostic doctrine, which would be the tree of Gnosis. Um, and of course, that's the root word for Gnosticism. So it's the knowledge of good and evil. And it's not that Adam and Eve didn't have knowledge in Eden. I mean, he was Adam before even the creation of Eve. And then even afterwards, you got all of two people that are running this massive agricultural area that has four rivers like the Nile and the Euphrates running through it in a wide area. They have orchards, they have forests, they have all of these animals, they have, uh, they're doing ranching, they're planting crops. And, and as you understand the language that's used in Hebrew in that language, it, it comes very clear that it's the size of operation. So to run that, they would have to have a lot of knowledge that was taught to them by God. So it's not that they didn't have any knowledge. And one of the interesting things about knowledge is uh, I'm not anti-knowledge because it's how it's used uh, that makes it good or evil. But at that time, and with what uh, Adam and Eve uh, had received from God and what they knew of the world, they only understood the good application. And But as soon as they ate from the tree of good and evil, then all of a sudden they saw the application in all sorts of different ways of knowledge. And uh, unless it is done to knowledge is applied to honor God and to lead people uh, to God uh, and done in a godly way and in a good way, uh, then, um, you know, the knowledge of good and evil is what we have. Um, ever since we see how badly we use that and we're going to need God in the future time to write on our hearts so that we have the ability in our new bodies to control the application of knowledge you know lest we become like the rebellious angels right I mean so um, when when I look at the tree of knowledge this is something that is additional knowledge in terms of how you would apply knowledge and the knowledge that they were taught in in Eden. And we know that Adam is taught a lot of knowledge because he's going to teach this knowledge to his descendants who are going to create the agrarian society after Eden. And is going to be, you know, and also, you know, Cain's going to take that knowledge and take it to the, to, to the nomadic types of peoples, and they're going to start uh, in this agrarian society as well. So it's not just the tree of knowledge, I, I guess my point, it, it's what 
opens up your mind to all the things that aren't good, um, which is comes with that fruit there. And it's not just there was this more knowledge. I mean, knowledge has been around before then. They just had a, a, a corruption that they weren't ready for and not yet ready to handle. Neither are we yet ready to handle that. And to our, you know, chagrin and to our destiny, we're going to, our human race is going to basically destroy the earth with the help of fallen angels unless Jesus steps in. So we need to understand that term. I guess my point is, is in terms of the whole term, the knowledge of good and evil. Awesome. Thank you for that explanation. I think we might have time for one more question, and this one comes from MJM. They ask, do some of the four horses of Revelation ride faster than the others? Thus, while released at a different time from heaven, they might arrive on Earth in a different sequence? Well, uh, we don't get scripture for that. Um, you have to remember that these uh, riders on the horses, they come from the throne of God. These are the same as the four chariot riders in, um, in the book of Zechariah. And these are spirits, as are understood in the book of Zechariah. And just as you get the pronoun him, uh, and he that are, is used to describe these writers in the book of Revelation, which is the Greek word autos, that goes back to um, as a self-implied word, uh, self-reflecting word that means a wind or a spirit. And spirit used in the book of Zechariah is ruach for the Hebrew word, which is the spirit, which also is the same as the Holy Spirit word. You might use that as capitalized as opposed to a regular spirit. So, but my point is, is these are angels that are coming from before the, the Lord. These are the four spirits. These are the four winds as they're also described throughout Old Testament prophecy that are coming. These are the four winds of empires and prophecy. So they blow up the the sea to bring these empires about as the book of Daniel in, in Daniel 7 talks about with the, the beast empires. These are the four winds of prophecy that are dispersing the lost Israelites and will help to gather them also in the end time. So these are very interesting, I would call watcher kind of, of angels because they come before God. So with that being the nature of them, they could get anywhere as fast as they want, whether or not they're riding a horse or not. But the imagery that they're getting is, is that they're riding, they're riding horses. Uh, so I don't think there's any difference in the horses. I just think that it's the imagery of the prophetic allegory that we're getting. But essentially, these are angels that are coming to implement uh, God's will. Yeah, that's a really great question, you would think. If that were the case... Uh, what was suggested there that John probably would have made it pretty clear. Uh, but yeah, thank you for that answer. I guess we do have a few minutes left. This uh, last question is one that we've had quite a few times in the past, but maybe we can just touch on it real quick. John Sparks asks, is the hokey pokey the mark of the beast? <laughs> I'm not sure what a hokey pokey is. <laughs> That's the, uh, so, you know, the snake bite that, that we that we shall not talk about. 
Oh, okay. I, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, no, I don't think it is. I think um, the mark of the it, it's going to be part of that whole system, uh, part of the you know the sorceries that are talked about in in Babylon, where that goes back to the Hebrew word uh, you know pharmakia. Um, so I think it's a developing technology that can work on sending messages uh, and has the ability to change genes and, and, and things like that in terms of what is applied to cure that particular kind of, of sorcery. But it's not the mark of the beast. But I think when we're... Um, Looking at that beast system that's coming, I mean, it's going to be something that is going to hook us into uh, this almost like this supercomputer type of central system, right? And that we're going to have implants. You know, I was listening to uh, Star Trek uh, Picard the other night. And they were talking about their vaccine. Sorry, I said that word, but their vaccine implants on Star Trek that uh, automatically supply their vaccines, which was, you know, kind of eerie uh, to have them using that. And I'm, I'm not sure that they're going to be censored, but uh, that's because they're they're carrying out the polytheist religion uh, doctrines that are in Star Trek. But uh, I, I go, I'm down down a rabbit hole here. So, but what I do think is. Is, is that it is leading us in this direction and we'll know what the mark is. It's still developing and it's got AI part of it. It's got quantum computing that's part of it. It's going to have the new digital monetary system, some sort of advanced Bitcoin thing that's going to be in it. And it is going to be bringing all of the knowledge of the world together through that implant and as well as give us extended lives. So I would say the hokey pokey is just part of the beginning of sorrows um, as um, you have pestilence, famine, wars, rumors of war and earthquakes that are the beginning of sores that are going to get stronger. So I think we're going to get more of this pestilence that's getting stronger as it goes with other um, diseases and things that are, are coming along. That's And just as all of those catastrophes show up in Revelation 6, for example, and then the trumpets and and, and in the wrath bowls, they get stronger in percentages, 25, 33, and 100%, except that Jesus stands in. Understand wormwood, as understood in Hebrew, is a poison, and that it poisons the river. So there'll be a pestilence there as well. All right. Thank you very much for the answer, and thank you, everybody, for joining tonight. That is the end of our show, and uh, yep. We love you all so very much. Please do check out Brother Gary at Genesis6Conspiracy.com. That's Genesis with the number 6Conspiracy.com. Good night, all. Shalom. Every day, questions arise. Are the stories in the Bible true? What if I told you that there are hundreds of confirming witnesses which give intricate detail to the stories in the Bible? Have you ever found yourself deep in the rabbit hole with questions that no one seemed to have the answers to? Check out swpcalendar.com to see when to join us for our next Ask Me Anything series with author and researcher Gary Wayne as he sheds light on the mysteries which have us all searching together.